I'm an interpreter. I talk about it all the time. Last time we talked for two hours, so I thought I should give you a heads up. <laughs> Yay! That's going to be awesome. We had a recording on, on Monday where we managed to run out someone's mobile internet alerts, which I thought were first for us. It's already getting heated before the recording starts. Guys, I'm already having vicarious trauma from all this news coverage, so, you know. It can't be vicarious if you actually suffer it directly. Exactly, then it's just trauma. Well, I'm, yeah, okay. <laughs> I have to say, I listened, went back and listened to your what, episode with Justine the other day, and the image of um, Oktoberfest. <laughs> what? Yep. <laughs> One of our episodes on Spotify actually has a an explicit content warning. Only one? I thought, what did we say? We try to avoid that? Well, I tried to. It's, it's family friendly for a weird definition of family. And I was like, ah, oh, shucks. Welcome, everyone, to Troublesome Terps, the podcast that keeps interpreters up even on a Friday night at 9 p.m., which That's is commitment. a moment. That is commitment. And I am Alexander Gansmeyer, here to introduce to you our lovely non-manal for the day. But <clears> as always, I will start with the resident jokesters, our luscious Luxembourgian, Alexander Drexel. Wait, wait what? The luscious luxury. I don't know. I just made you just that up. had to. You just had to make the alliteration work. I get that. Yeah, okay. of course. That works for me. Hi, everyone. <laughs> and then, of course, also our sassy Scotsman, Jonathan Downey. Oh. Welcome. I'll take both of them. Actually, both of them are accurate. Which See? Is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that works. All right. And then, of course, we have two lovely ladies joining us today. Alex, who's joining us today as our special guest on this Friday night? Yeah, first of all, we have a, um, I was going to say repeat offender, but that sounds horrible. But <laughs> just to say. Depending how the night goes. <laughs> we've had her on the show before. It's Sarah Hickey from Goway. Good evening, Sarah. Hey, good evening. What an introduction. So yeah. nice to be back. <laughs> He's feeling the love. The, the way he <laughs> yeah. said Sarah Hickey from Galway reminded me of an old TV show called Blind Date. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mm, okay. I love it. Oh, my God. I don't think I want to know more about this at this point. She likes golf for lacrosse. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> off to a rocky start. <laughs> Moving on to our final guest for today's episode, it's Hannah Watson. Good evening, Hannah. Good evening, guys and gal. <laughs> the gal was very up because it was actually actually Sarah who um, introduced you um, to us because yes. we wanted to do um, we wanted to do more on mental health and vicarious trauma and um, sort of discuss that topic once again, which we had done before with Justine Mason, but we always felt that there was a need to sort of dig deeper, go further in that. And um, as it so happened, Sarah wrote very interesting um, articles on NIMSI about exactly that topic. So we figured that would be a good constellation to bring together on the show, I guess. Yep. So that's what we're going to talk about. Here we are. But yeah, before we sort of dive into the research. Um, Hannah, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? We know that you are a sign language interpreter. So maybe start with that a little bit for those of us or for those um, listeners who don't know that much about sign language interpreting, maybe. Well, first correction, I'm a British sign language interpreter. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are multiple sign languages. It is not universal. That's right. 
Um, so yes, I'm British Sign Language Interpreter, have been for over a decade. <clears throat> and yeah, I got into that, changed schools, met a couple of deaf girls, kind of became a bit of a language thing there, started learning it, had the deaf tutor go, have you thought about becoming an interpreter? Well, I'm doing lots of languages. So that was what I went to university to do straight out of A-levels and kind of haven't looked back since, been dabbling in everything deaf community and interpreting related since. And then sort of natural extension of that a couple of years back was I did a diploma in supervision, which has kind of been the adjunct to that. Um, that's kind of indirectly how I've ended up in this evening. <laughs> <laughs> and just, just quickly, how does one become a sign language or British sign language interpreter? Um, so I did a mishmash of a university degree having done some evening classes to begin learning sign language went to the University of Wolverhampton did a three-year undergraduate came out as the bottom level of registration they've changed all the acronyms several times since then <laughs> as they want to do so I came out as the bottom level of registration then did a couple of MVQs to kind of finish topping my knowledge off prove I could jump through all the hoops um, and came out of that and that was probably about a three two and a half year from coming out of university to going the okay I now meet the minimum national standards. So which university did you do your undergraduate degree in because I, I understand certainly in the UK there aren't that many who will do a full undergraduate degree in, sign in British Sign Language Interpreting. So the point I went there was only Bristol and Wolverhampton. I went to Wolverhampton. Bristol since closed its doors to having the undergraduates. I believe the only two undergraduates now are still Wolverhampton although you can take that through to an MA and the Harriet Watt one. So yep, yep there's only actually one in England. Wow yeah. And how did you how did you two meet um, Sarah and, and Hannah? Well, uh, I was doing a project for NIMSI on vicarious trauma in interpreters. Um, started out with an article that I believe you guys have read, "The Cost of Caring," because that's accessible to the public as well. Uh, but then we also did a more in-depth um, report with primary research. So I reached out with a survey first and um, put in the option for people to. Uh, be contacted by me basically if they wanted if they would be available for an interview and Hannah was one of the people who reached out and so we set up an interview and she gave me some more detailed insights about her experience with vicarious trauma and we in particular also talked about clinical supervision which is kind of a tool for um, interpreters to help them like overcome or deal with um, vicarious trauma and other things they experience on the job. And I know Hannah can talk in more detail about that later, but this is how we started talking. And then uh, Hannah reached out to me for an interview afterwards uh, for research she's doing. So we, we've kind of kept the communication lines op open since. Sounds great. Although I will jump in and say amongst the interpreting profession, we're trying to call it professional supervision, just to have the differentiation that clinical is kind of counsellors. And so it's professional supervision. It's also not helped amongst sign language interpreters because our registration body uses the term supervisor for supervising trainees. So we needed right. the additional wording yep. to kind of really differentiate. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can have professional supervision if you're a trainee who's also being supervised for regulatory becoming a qualified mm. purposes. Okay. But it is slightly different. The, those registering body supervisors are 
that's more of an assessing role checking mm. the boxes are you doing your training plan etc <laughs> doing the paperwork yeah yeah, so that's a, that is a different role. Um, so yeah, just having that differentiator so we can kind of help clarify for people what that is. Okay, I think I think it's interesting because from my understanding is that professional supervision seems to take its background from the kind of support that's been made available for I don't know how long for doc, for those in the medical profession. Um, mm. And I'm not sh- I'm not sure when the the awareness started, but I've really been amazed and encouraged by the awareness amongst British Sign Language interpreters that their job actually has a lot of the same um, caring issues and issues of things like kind of emotional overload and the mm. need to build resilience, need to talk through your experience that you would experience if you were in the medical profession. And it's been really encouraging to see sign language inter- to see British Sign Language interpreters actually be some of the first in the entire interpreting sector to say, you know, because we are there, um, it matters that we get help as well. Mm. And I think part of that has come from um, some of Dean and Pollard, Robin Dean's research around moving interpreting more towards a practice profession. And so a lot of that kind of dialogue around expanding it out of the the um, the EPIs and moving it beyond just language and it is the people involved and you're making decisions in context of the situation you're in. Mm. I think that's also, and that's also probably some of the interpreters you hang around with, um, <laughs> that, that you are more in the, 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 the aware tip of the iceberg on that <laughs> side of things. Um, but I think some of that also stems from the fact that A, we're, 98% of the time, I would say off the top of my head, physically present at all of our jobs. Mm. Yeah. You know, we're, we're not sitting in a booth. We're not physically removed from the situation. We kind of, apart from the slight rise of VRS, um, video relay interpreting that side of things, um, most of it is still in person. So I yeah. think that physical presence has kind of impacted that kind of conversation a bit more than it would have spoken language interpreters. I think the other side of that as well, and that was something I was discussing with Sarah when we had my interview, was it's the physicality of sign language, mm-hmm. both from a physical, quote-unquote, waving your arms around. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you do get that at the, oh, you, you're the person that waves their hands around on the bottom corner of the telly, you know, like uh. I see at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Yes, I am the equivalent of the person that is interpreting Hollyoaks at two o'clock in the morning. However, that is not all I do. (laughs) (laughs) There's still a lot of awareness raising to be done around sign languages and sign language interpreting, but uh, I hear there's a podcast about that. (laughs) (laughs) I I was just going to say, one of the things that we need to get out there that spoken language interpreters aren't aware of is in spoken language interpreting, and I am trying to fight against this, we split the world into nice, neat settings. Mm. We have court interpreters, we have community interpreters, we have business interpreters, and we have conference interpreters. And it's all nice and neat and quiet, and there are some interpreters who, if you suggest to them that they could retrain or work in any other setting, they go ballistic at you as if you've just insulted their mother. (laughs) But with sign language interpreters, you guys don't have that. I mean, I know that there's kind of an element of choice, 
from what I understand of sign language interpreting and supervising two interns for six months, uh, sorry, coaching, not supervising, <laughs> coaching, coaching two interns for six months, is that sign language interpreters, because there are so few of you, you end up, you could end up doing a hospital visit one day and an international conference the next. And that's... Yes, and I think um, I think it's about twelve hundred of us in the entirety of the UK. Mm-hmm. G- g- give or take, my numbers might be slightly off, but that that's the figure that sits in my head. So yes, we get trained to be interpreters in any domain, and it's more or less you kind of then go and do a bit of extra on the job training or a couple of maybe there's a, a two day foundations in mental health interpreting course that you go and do, or you go and do three days worth on court interpreting, and that's. The add-on after, you, you just trained as an interpreter, just. You're trained as, <laughs> as an interpreter first. And I think that the other side of that possibly is because we're working with such a minority community. And so we get a lot more of the cultural aspects of that coming in because of the sensitivities of working with what is traditionally an oppressed community. And also I think that's because we are by physical nature the only set of interpreters who can't be from the community or to date mm. couldn't because deaf people can't hear <laughs> so therefore they Get can't interpret <laughs> in they, they can't be interpreters in their mother tongue there is a rise of trained translators who are deaf themselves and can work from auto cues or sort of live feeds and that sort of thing. So there are more deaf interpreters coming through in that respect, but that's very much teamwork. That's a different setup. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually heard about that in, in Germany that there's in German, they call them reinterpreters. So it's basically like a hearing person will listen to what is being said, then interpret it into sign language. And then there will be a deaf person looking at the sign language and then reinterpreting it into, well, basically they're like their mother tongue. Yeah. yeah so um, in the, in the UK, we call those relay interpreters. Mm. So the deaf person might be going from me as a British sign language interpreter. I'm listening to the English. I'm putting it into British sign language. They might be then translating it into German sign language or Australian sign language. Right. So they're at, right. so they are in that instance they are interpreting because they're going from one sign language to another sign language, or they might be using it often for deaf people whose whose first language is British sign language, but they're a minimal language user or they're in very acute mental distress. So the amount of language modification I would need to do as a British Sign Language interpreter might be beyond my capacity. I mean, I can I can take my register up and down quite a lot. I've just signed at you on camera. Yeah, adjusting <laughs> my register. <laughs> um, so I, I, I can work within the boundaries of sign language to a reasonable degree, but there will be some points that I will hit that it's just the, okay, that is no longer in my capacity to use British Sign Language in the way that that person needs. And that's where nuances of someone who is deaf and uses the language themselves and is trained as a relay would be able to add different nuances, especially in the mental health setting, to be able to break things down in a different way to completely reframe things, for example. Right, but then that, that could also be from British Sign Language into British Sign Language from the deaf interpreter because i think that's what the guy in german in munich was telling me that it happens from german to german sign language to german sign language done by the deaf sign language yes. interpreter so that that was what i meant by the mental health example that british sign language 
to the deaf interpreter who would be using British Sign Language, but in a much more broken down, much more explained, perhaps much more culturally appropriate, they're able to tune into the language of that person in a way that would either take me a lot longer and or perhaps I just don't have the nuances that they do. Hmm. Right. I think also I've come across sign language translation. One of my supervisors was uh, Svenja Wurm, who did her PhD on sign language translation, where you have like a, a textbook where you could have a hearing interpreter or a, a deaf interpreter who's working with that and trying to work out how do I sign this textbook? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really interesting. I mean, this is a whole other podcast <laughs> episode. <laughs> So there's two things going on. One, I tell people that if you want to know what spoken language interpreters will be discussing in 10 years' time, you look at what sign language interpreters are talking about today. Um, and the other one is is that uh, sign language interpreting across, I think, most sign languages is becoming a lot more varied and a lot more um, able to do a lot more things than people give it credit for. Um, and that does that put more pressure on trained sign language interpreters to kind of be even more flexible to be able to do everything? Or is that creating space for a measure of specialisation? Um, the, there's still a bit of the, you are expected to be a jack of all trades, I think, in that mm. perspective. Um, you can, I mean, so for instance, I don't tend to do a lot of theatre work standing mm. up on stage because A, that's not my particular preference, and B, I've actually got an old underlying shoulder issue, injury that means doing extended periods on my own for any length of time is not something that's physically possible for me. So there is a certain amount of preference that can come into that. But I think possibly due to the numbers, it's always been a, you're given as much as you can and you work Mm. with what you've got. Mm, That sounds familiar. (laughs) But um, (laughs) so the topic of the night was going to be vicarious trauma. And I'm sure that sign language interpreters just due to the variety of scenarios that you guys are working in, experience that a ton as well. But obviously it also affects um, spoken language interpreters. So I wonder if maybe we could, first of all, just throw out a definition of vicarious trauma for the listeners in case anyone's not 100% familiar with the concept. Yeah, so when I looked into the concept, um, vicarious trauma was defined as internalizing someone else's trauma. Um, so interpreters are not the only professions, uh, professionals that are affected by this. It's quite common in um, first responders and in psychologists. Um, so any people that deal with people who have been traumatized and by having to listen to them, they start to also see those images or hear screams like in uh, like famous examples are of course from 9-11 or from war zones but it can be anything police working uh, child pornography rings um, like horrible horrible cases but it can also be uh, it doesn't need to be as extreme it can also be um, certain smaller everyday issues that people experience and so it's quite common in interpreters, as we found, um, but it's barely being talked about. And lots of interpreters aren't even aware that it is happening to them when it's happening to them. They might realize, okay, something's not right, but don't really understand that it's vicarious trauma that they're experiencing. But just on what you said, I think that's also where I first came across the whole term was mostly from interpreters working in conflict zones. So I don't know if that's just Mm -hmm. coincidence or maybe there's a relationship there as well. 
Well, I'd say that's one of the most common examples used as well, <clears throat> because if you just think about what people are dealing with in those, they probably have on top of vicarious trauma, their own trauma to deal with as well, if you're being sent into conflict zones. So that's really one of the very extreme scenarios, but also purely because we as interpreters, you know, our job is to speak in the first person. We have to mimic the emotions of the speaker. So after a while, just for the, the brain, it's starting to uh, internalize this when you see like, I experienced this, I heard this. And, you know, you start to see those people have described seeing images and, you know, not being able to get them out of their heads anymore and just feeling empty afterwards and depressed. Um, or even getting a panic attacks and stuff like that as well. I've never gotten to the point with seeing images, but I have had two assignments that I can remember where um, I actually had to get outside help because my brain, it just felt like it had gone numb or blank afterwards. So there, there seems to, are there levels in the, the kinds of vicarious trauma that interpreters experience? Or is it a black and white from, yeah, I'm fine to, I've got these images that I can't deal with. Is there kind of some set of levels in between maybe? Uh, definitely, yeah. So I have always just, when people, uh, when, when I talk to people about this, I use the extremer examples uh, for, to allow for an easier definition. Um, it's like when people ask me what an interpreter is and I tell them, well, you know those people at the EU that sit in the background in the booth? It's like, yeah, that's an, <laughs> easy <laughs> that's an easy example. You know, everyone. Do you know Alexander Drexel? That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yes, of course, there are various levels um, to what people have experienced and it can range from people uh, experiencing it in the moment or it lasting for hours for some but for some it lasts for days and uh, months uh, some struggle with it for decades so it depends on I guess how severe the experience was or how often people experience it as well um, but yeah there's, there's a whole range I wouldn't say there is just like one type of experience it's one concept but that can it be experienced on all sorts of levels I guess from sort of being within a minority oppressed culture that you're interpreting for actually for instance if I'm doing a lot of what's termed in the UK access to work booking so you're working um they sometimes term it designated interpreter mm. so you're working with the same individual constantly week in week out which in some ways is great from an interpreting perspective familiarity knowing the people the jargon etc the flip side of that is you're the one that sees all the snide little comments and interprets all the snide little comments and that drip, 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 drip of discrimination, the indirect discrimination, and that slowly filtering through when you're in a situation where your boundaries could get a little bit wobbly because you're in a familiar situation all the time. The combination of those two is kind of right at that greyer end of the scale of vicarious trauma because you're living somebody else's oppression Wow. Someone I interviewed as well, uh, he was working in Colombia quite a lot and had to go on trips with the UN as well and go to like these really poor villages. And he said he once had a breakdown when this little girl um, who had lost everything and uh, was just um, showing them very proudly where they live now and that like beautiful garden. And he said it was just a pile of dirt and it was completely run down and it just like hit him out of nowhere where, you know, he came in from this area of privilege and looked at the extreme poverty that the people are experiencing there. Or another person I talked to, she works in a pediatric trauma um, center 
and she has to deal with extremely sick children and children that die all the time. She said she almost, she's at a point where um, when she sees a child now, she just feels uh, like when she sees uh, a normal child, she's overcome with positive emotions, like almost crying out of happiness because she's not used to seeing healthy children. She just feels like every mm. child is going to die. Oh yeah. <laughs> and it's just, uh, you know, she said sometimes it hits her days later when she's watching a movie just out of nowhere, bawling, crying them. So yeah, I guess it can have, I mean, I personally haven't experienced it. I just spoke to people who have, um, but from what I've seen there, it can have all sorts of, levels and um, come out in different ways as well. Right. I think to answer Jonathan's question a little bit more is that you can be at the level of the, is you can have something sharp and have that, okay, yes, this has hit me and I can pinpoint exactly what it is versus something like that regular scenario where it's drip, drip, drip. And you mm. just suddenly get to the point of that you walk in the door like a week or two later and you want to kick the cat. And you can't tell <laughs> why you want to kick the cat or randomly yell at your partner or whatever. Yeah. And it's gotten to the point that your your bucket, as it were, has just hit full. And it's that build up of maybe lots of different events like this that have just got to that point of the right and the bucket's gone. Mm. So I have two quick questions. Um but one of them might be quick. The other one is, might be a bit more extensive. So vicarious trauma, it has to be related to PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorders in one way or the other, right? Uh, I feel like that there is sort of like an overlap somehow, maybe maybe not in our profession, but... Well, actually, um, when, when I wrote about it, um, kind of said that it mimics the symptoms of P PTSD. Because the thing with PTSD is it's still your trauma right that's the whereas point. this it's the trauma still exp um, happened to someone else yes but you are experiencing the same symptoms as someone who's suffering from ptsd yeah i think the mimicking is a good word there yeah yeah absolutely 100 percent. so the the second question was um i i wonder sarah if in your research you found that there was a because I'm trying to think in, in into my past in the different conferences, I don't really think that there would have been any situation where, you know, I would have been exposed to those kinds of situations that would have caused that vicarious trauma. Um, the only times that I feel like this would have been potentially the case were other situations where I was working with refugees or at hospitals. So it feels like a very PSI um, Yeah. Well, not uh, focused, but, you know, it feels like very much PSI topic. Yeah, well, when I looked into, so we, we looked at the, the types of interpreting and also right. the subject mm. areas, let's say. And what we found that was that people like mostly experienced by, or most strongly experienced um, or most commonly experienced vicarious trauma in uh, community interpreting, medical interpreting and court interpreting. Right. And within those, um, in the areas of victims of abuse, Child Protective Services, Mental Health, um, Refugees and Asylum Seekers, and in the healthcare sector. Hmm. So I feel like... That makes it, sense. Yeah, I also felt like it made sense because those are scenarios where you're, first of all, closer to people hmm. and those people you're talking to come like from extremer backgrounds either or are currently in extremer situations. Um, hmm. So I've, to me, it also made sense that those were the ones that stood out. Yeah. But do, do you think, Hannah, that um, 
it's more prevalent in the sign language community then because uh, as you were saying it's kind of like a jack of all trades and you're kind of working in very different situations whereas for spoken language interpreting you know the chances of me experiencing vicarious trauma at a finance conversation is relatively <laughs> oh sorry a finance conference is relatively mm, yeah. low so i feel like it's easier for spoken language interpreters to kind of be more aware of I don't know how to put it, but I feel like it, the the risk of experiencing vicarious trauma might be a bit higher in general for sign language interpreters. And I think because there are fewer of us, we tend to get the pointy end of the stick of interpreting assignments more mm. often than not. We are, unfortunately, it it is the police assignments, it is the mental health assignments, it is the more emergency end of the spectrum, as it were. You don't tend to get the, unless you so for instance are working with mental health professionals who are deaf who are going to conferences but they are going to conferences about mental health so you right. then might get service user stories at those that are recorded videos or people talking about their experience so again those can be almost as traumatic if they're being used at conference they're usually on they're usually more sort of the wellness someone who is on the road to recovery. So they're less likely mm. to be the in-crisis mental health people that are used as those examples. But you can still have, in that situation, some quite horrendous stories come at you from left field. And it's the, okay, well, it's specifically a mental health conference. So you're kind of, your brain's already in that ballpark. But I think because it is the, it's not the social work visit that's the nice social work visit to the school because it's the preventative side of things it's the social work visit because it's the team around the child meeting or it's the home visit because the kids are at risk of being taken away from mum so it can be that sort of yeah sharper end of the stick as it were but I think the other side of things and there's something that I was discussing with Sarah in my interview was that because of sign language interpreters we physically embody the language in a way that for you guys as spoken language interpreters, yeah, if, you, if you're interpreting something funny or something quite humorous, you know, your facial expressions will reflect that a bit. But the facial expression for us is our entire tone in sign language. That's how you show a lot of the intonation, how you show a lot of the emotion, as well as the physicality of speed, how big you're signing, how small you're signing, all of that is sign language so it's not just that you're saying i in signing or in spoken english when you're signing it you are physically embodying it and so i would think that triggers the mirror neurons even more because it mm. can't like so if, if you're spoken language interpreting and something really emotional comes up and all they're swearing left right and center and you are not in a position to continue interpreting that verbatim Switching into third person is a lot easier in the spoken language. And yes, I can mm. do that if I'm voicing over. However, if I'm doing it in sign language, I would be signing front on to you for first person. It's You shift your shoulders to go into third person. That's the only difference. Mm. So you're still physically oh, wow. embodying all of that language. And a lot of the time, even when you're interpreting into English for a deaf person, you're often back-channeling, so you're giving them little signs so they know where you are in the interpretation. So you're still quite oh. physically embodying the yeah. language even more so. And I think that kind of element isn't really, for me, that mind-body connection is so strong that I don't think that side of it is kind of recognised as much. 
I don't think it is that well understood. I mean, the two occasions where I've dealt with traumatic conference interpreting, one of them was traumatic because the people who were speaking were people who I'd known for years, and they were talking about a visit to an area where they were going out scouting for a, a charity, and they were saying that their express purpose in being there was to find out what was needed. And when they arrived in the area, they found out that it was an entire people group whose only economic activity was selling their uh, wives and children into prostitution. Mm -hmm. They obviously didn't show videos of that act, but they showed enough pictures and told enough stories that I'm, you know, 20, 15 metres away in an interpreting booth interpreting. But when it's your friends on stage saying that, or people that you respect and you've known for years, you kind of end up embodying some of that myself and it is to this day the only time I've ever interpreted while writing a check because I was like you know we're giving them money I don't care <laughs> but um, mm. but it, was, it wasn't it was until after that and I think I don't know if, if sign language interpreters are taught the whole professional distance thing but um, I was so it was only about a year after I'd finished my master's that I interpreted that and I'd been so entrenched in this professional distance thing that I used that while I was doing the interpreting I got out it was at a conference my whole family were at I got out of the conference went to dinner asked my wife did they really say and said like one or two things and she said yes and I just collapsed at the dinner table mm. and I just couldn't eat because suddenly I was aware of what I'd been saying mm. um, and that is so I, I would agree it's, it's far more common in things like PSI and in sign language interpreting more generally and community interpreting but I think as conference interpreters, there are occasions where, you know, we're not going to get it at a finance conference. We're not going to get it at a sales conference. But if you're doing something on, say, social policy, or if you're doing any work for a charity, which some interpreters will, and uh, there are some charities who pay conference interpreters to, to, mm -hmm. to do conference interpreting, you're likely to hit that. And I think it's a dangerous myth to say to conference interpreters, it's it's unlikely to happen. Yeah, it's unlikely to happen, but you should that be aware of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you should be aware of it. And I think we need the the support mechanisms as well. Mm. And when I say that, you know, the three most common types were community, medical, and court, that doesn't mean that no one take the conference interpreting box. You know, there were yeah, still people um, who were hit there as well. And like you said, it can depend on the topic. If the UN discusses stuff uh, in detail about war tribunal, uh, you know war zones or something, I would imagine there can be gruesome details there as well. And um, since you mentioned the um, finance debate, actually, one of the guys I spoke to for the report I did, um, he took it maybe a little bit further, but he said, uh, he remembers one meeting as well where there were a bunch of bankers in a room and he was interpreting uh, for them. And he said that they were basically talking about how they were going to screw people over. And that it hit him and that he was like, Shit, I'm kind of enabling this. Mm. And that he, he felt like he had to deal with this kind of moral component suddenly as well. Of like, you know, I know this is taking it maybe a step further from vicarious trauma, but he felt like it plays I a role in it as well. I, I would disagree that it doesn't take it further than vicarious trauma, because a lot of the time why something is traumatic to you is because it goes against your value system. Mm. Mm. Good point, actually, yeah. Yeah. So for yeah. different people, different things may be traumatic. And for instance, the finance conference, they might decide on the middle of the break, actually, we're doing a massive fundraising thing for this particular charity in this harrowing war-torn country. Here you go, have the lovely advert that's showing all the terrible things that are happening there. 
uh, you know, finance, 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 UNICEF, finance, <laughs> for instance. Yeah. So yeah, very true, very pop, true. Pop me out completely. I stand corrected. <laughs> but but I, I think that the other one where I had trauma, and this time I actually knew, uh, I kind of emailed someone that I knew to get help, was it was in the middle of a a charity actually talking about their migration policy which on the fo- on, on the face of it you're like policy great we can do policy but they decided to decide on their international migration policy by having people from all over the world talk about their experiences of migration hmm. and so you know the, our prep materials were all reports and stuff and it was all reports that interpreters can deal with without even thinking about but when you have when you're at one point i was doing on stage kind of sentence by sentence consec for someone who was sharing the co- uh, what migration and several diseases had done to his family. Mm. And I'm used to doing kind of 20, 30 minute shifts. 10 minutes of that, I sat back down, grabbed my booth mate and said, you need to take over. She's like, why? You've only done 10 minutes. I said, just don't ask, just take over. Um, and that was the one that that hit me when I got back to the hotel that, that evening and just went, my brain just went numb. And I think it's it's almost easier when you expect it in a sense. You know, if I'd seen that, I'd have gone, yeah, okay, fine. You know, the, you, you can prepare for it when it comes out of the blue and you're like, oh, right. That's a really good point. Yeah. A bunch of people brought exactly this up with me as well, that they said um, it's the worst cases they said are when it's unexpected. When you expect this for be, to be like a tough assignment, at least you can kind of brace yourself and prepare yourself and maybe find some distance beforehand. But when it's just out of nowhere, from what I've been told, uh, it hits, hits people the hardest. And I think maintaining that sort of distance is even harder when you're interpreting in such a small community, such as the mm, deaf community, because right. it is not a case of six degrees of separation. It's the, oh, I've just bumped into you again in this situation and I saw you last week in this particular situation. It's one or none degrees of separation and you can be working with the same clients across multiple settings. And so that kind of closeness can maintaining your distance there and how you work with that is, is a lot harder, but at the same time, it's seen as a benefit by the deaf community that you are seen as a deaf ally, that you are someone who isn't just using them as an interpreter. So swings and roundabouts to that, but that kind of professional distance thing. I mean, there are lots of other professions where you would get kicked off the register for sleeping with your client, yet quite (laughs) a lot of sign language interpreters are married to deaf people. (laughs) They just try not to interpret for them. (laughs) Uh, their hospital appointments. Yeah. <laughs> I think I actually know a couple as well, actually. Yeah, in fact, I do know at least one. Um, yep. <laughs> but it is, so the, the thing is, my understanding and conference interpreters, my fellow conference interpreters might disagree with me, my understanding is the professional distance discussion, I believe, is originally a conference interpreting discussion precisely because of where conference interpreting came from. Is it even a, and this links very closely with vicarious trauma, is it a useful term in something like sign language interpreting where your trauma is coming from the fact that the professional distance, however you want to define it, is breaking down? Is it a better way of discussing it that might help people come to terms with vicarious trauma more easily than talking about distance? Well, I was was trying to wrap my brain and I don't think professional distance 
um, quote unquote, was used in my training. Okay, I'm casting my mind back 11 years ago, but yeah. <laughs> um, as a term, yes, impartiality was was drilled into mm. us of that very much. Yes, you Jonathan's are there. favourite term. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I had to try a paper on that. <laughs> you, you, when you are interpreting at the doctor's surgery, because you have to sit next to the GP so the deaf person can see both of you in their eye line, you put your chair back from the GP's so that you are not on the same level as them. Okay, that's not the point, but it is the, so you are not distracting them. But so there, there, there was kind of stuff around that, but as a, as a method of, yes, you kind of put it in the box in your head when you're interpreting and you deal with it later, was the, was the sort of the unspoken bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that goes against every single piece of mental health advice that Justine Mason told us on the podcast. <laughs> but it is the, you turn up, you do your job, you come away. And it was when I was listening to the, that episode of Justine, I can't remember which of the Alex's it was, saying about not wanting to do VRI because you wouldn't have your booth made. Mm. For sign language interpreters, we are on our own most of the time. Mm. Having a co-interpreter would be in the rare conference setting, teams for court. Mm. That's a big thing though, yeah. And, and But only in those big all-day all settings. Most of the rest of the time, you are on your own. So you could, if it's if, if you're a rural interpreter, you might not have seen another sign language interpreter for a good few months. Mm. And and so that you, you're sort of you, you're in the deaf community, but you're not. And even if you've grown up in the community and you're what's known as a coder, a child of deaf adults, mm. you're in the community. But when you're interpreting, you're not. And so there's that really odd line of, yes, you're trying to maintain your distance so that it's seen as we are not the missionaries who originally used sign language and were the helpers and we're not signers. <laughs> Yeesh. Um, you know, we are professional sign language interpreters. So, yes, you are trying to maintain a boundary, but that can be taken so far of the, well, I do not step outside this boundary. It becomes too rigid. And that's where it's the whole, okay, yeah, I'll mentally shut it in the mental wardrobe and deal with it later. Brackets, mm. never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think like the whole code interpreter situation that you were talking about is is actually a crucial factor because, you know, speaking for conferences, it doesn't have to be a traumatic conference, but just if it's a very stressful conference or if... I don't know, you were upset by someone if it was very stressful, if it's been a really long day, just bitching to your boothmate about it helps so much. It like decompresses and you so much that that alone really proce processes a lot of the negative emotions that you would be going through at that particular moment. Totally, yeah. So that's a really, yeah. yeah. So it's not having that for sign language interpreters. Yeah. It's no wonder that um, getting is the, why is it when a group of sign language interpreters always get together? They always end up down the pub. They always end up completely rat-assed. And they always end well, up I sharing stories. Well, I think it might stories. be an interpreter thing. Yeah, but... but Tito, Tito, Tito. <laughs> but, okay, from my experience today, that was of sign language interpreters. And it's the, because we're even more isolated from each other, that yeah. is, you know, you get a group of... Gaggle or a flock or whatever the collective noun of interpreters is. <laughs> I like a gaggle of interpreters. You get a gaggle of interpreters together, and that is the. It becomes then this space for the. You you know what I'm on about there, mm. and and off the chest it comes. And whilst I don't disagree with the power of a good vent, 
and sometimes my partner can get that moment of the I've just walked in the door my trains back from London have been hell <laughs> moment beyond venting it doesn't then get you anywhere it doesn't it releases the pressure valve briefly but then the next time you're in that sort of stressful situation how do you deal with it Right. Oh, just uh, that I thought it was interesting you mentioned uh, venting to someone else because um, a, a few people talked about um, having a debrief partner being a helpful tool. Um, so I'm not in the sign language uh, community, or maybe as well, because uh, in the survey that we did, there were uh, lots and lots of respondents from all types of interpreting. Um, but yeah, this was one of the tools mentioned by a few people And um, what Hannah will talk about later about uh, more detailed professional supervision definitely takes it a good step further, but uh, it's not established everywhere yet. So for those who don't have that uh, um, at their fingertip at the moment anyway, um, lots of people recommended having a certain debrief partner because one of the problems as well in our profession is uh, the aspect of confidentiality. We all have to you know, handle the info information confidentially. And mm. so that already um, made some people feel like they cannot talk to anyone, not even their fellow um, colleagues, interpreting colleagues, unless they were maybe on the same assignment. But um, by having a debrief partner, um, it can be like an agreement between two interpreters to maybe um, talk about how someone felt on a certain assignment, how it affected them, but without giving anything away that's confidential and to have this kind of agreement of just being a, a listener as well. Um, yeah, this was something that a bunch of people mentioned to me. Yeah, I have a sort of a kind of related question is um, because we talked about how sort of your boothmate can, you know, be a little bit of a, or can help you release pressure and, and frustration and that kind of thing. Um, but if we, if we take that away for a moment, I mean, how... Are there ways for individual interpreters to sort of recognize signs of, you know, something might be off, something um, something is sort of occupying their mind sort of in a more intense way than usual, for example? Because, I mean, there's stress and then there's burnout and then there's, you know, vicarious trauma. So how, how, how can we sort of get a better grasp of what's going on with ourselves? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, I think the key to all of this is um, raising awareness on all levels, ideally. And we need to, from what our um, survey uh, showed, we need to raise awareness among, uh, first of all, the interpreting community so that people are even aware that this is a thing and that if it happens to them, that they're not the only ones. Like, in fact, in our um, survey out of the, we had over 107 respondents And one third of them had experienced this before. So it's quite that's common. That's a lot, yeah. Um, oh, no, actually, two thirds. Sorry, that's even more. <laughs> so um, and that's the one thing. So amongst interpreters, then I, I think it needs to be brought up in interpreter training as well. And ideally, it should also be um, on the minds of people who hire interpreters. So... Especially if you're looking at, uh, like someone I interviewed, she works in this pediatric trauma center, which is essentially a hospital, where all the um, medical staff get constant uh, support, but none of the interpreters do, because it's not even on their mind that the interpreters could be affected, even though they're going in with the doctors into the same scenario and are experiencing it maybe on some level more intensely, like we said, with, uh, you know, speaking in the first person, mimicking the emotions. Right. But that's the whole thing, right? Yeah. I mean, you just say what they said 
quote unquote, and so it shouldn't be too much of a problem. Yeah. Exactly, and uh, this goes back to I think probably the profession in general being um, misunderstood still. But I do think to attack this, um, we need to have two things, and the one is the raising awareness on all these different levels, and then the other to establish better support systems for interpreters. I think as well, sort of when you're saying, can you recognise symptoms? Because stress to burnout to vicarious trauma, actually, it's all sliding scale in in terms of how you experience and and how exactly yeah one yeah. of the Alexes would experience it and what their symptoms might look like might be a very depressive type symptom for them. It's the being withdrawn from family. It's not wanting to engage with people. It's retreating into their emotions. Whereas the other Alex, it could be more along the lines of stress responses. So it's going to be different for different individuals and what they're symptomatic would be of the, okay, I've actually experienced Mm. something really bad. How do I know that in myself? So it's a, whilst it's making it more knowledgeable out there of the, you're interpreting, you're experiencing those emotions and it's okay because they're going through you. That wasn't taught in my training. It, it was it was mm. language, 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 technical, the, the rest of the stuff around it. I mean, these days I say interpreting's one third language, one third people skills and one third flying by the seat of your pants. <laughs> <laughs> I like that last third. <laughs> That's good. Sorry, I, I, I'm just celebrating here in the corner because I've been saying that for the past six years. Um, <laughs> we need to I get th- that on a T-shirt at some point. <laughs> I, well, I, my, my old motto, my new motto is interpreting is interpreting, which I love because it upsets so many people. Um, but my new motto is, my, my old motto used to be, um, when I started, I thought interpreting was about language skills with people attached. Now I realize it's people with language attached. <laughs> oh, you haven't said that in so long. I Drinking haven't game. said that in so long. And I haven't, even, I haven't even said controversial for about 15 episodes. Well, Alex and I do it now for you. <laughs> but, but I think that this is the thing is that um, when I was doing my PhD, I came across this lovely quote from performance studies, which I really like. And I think the interpreters share a lot in common with performers. In fact, we are by any definition. And Richard Schechner said that the, perfor- that the way the performer works is they are not me, but not, not me. <laughs> and it's like, you know, a performer would say it's not me because I've got a script or because I've got a character that I'm acting out, but it's not not me because it's still me doing the acting. And I find that really helpful in interpreting that when I'm interpreting, I'm not me because it's someone else's meanings of someone else's words but i'm not not me because when the words come out they're still coming out of my mouth i, I feel like i need to listen to this at half speed like 10 yeah. times yeah totally not me but not not me yeah yeah <laughs> no, sure. no, I got it. <laughs> and, and that's actually where the amount of sign language interpreters i know who can get up on stage and do performance interpreting or conference or platform stuff and can stand up there and be seen it's because they're not being seen as themselves. Mm, good point. Yeah, we should tell that to the students who are afraid of public speaking <laughs> or public signing. In that case, yeah, that that they are being seen as the other person because that is what is coming out. And um, but actually, that because it is you but not you is where that mind body connection gets completely confused because it only knows what you're experiencing. It can't tell that it's not your words and not your experience. So you're experiencing it firsthand. It's like the the whole stress response these days is the it was built into us because it was the oh look there's a rustle in the bush oh it might be a saber toothed tiger run. These days that applies to the oh 
have I forgotten to lock the door? Or, you know, I, my best friend called me up, whatever. And, and your brain can't differentiate between actual threat and thought threat. So for that, the same thing to be happening with that sort of interpreted content, I think that's where the emotional side of it, you know, we're, we're recruited and trained around the technical skills. Almost exclusively, yeah. Yeah. How you deal with people, what your response is, the fact that your interpretation is your understanding through your lens and your lens is made up of your experience growing up, your cultural experiences, all of that is going to be affecting how I would interpret something in sign language versus my colleague standing next to me who might have a fraction different understanding through a slightly different schema. And none of that is looked at or unpacked how we are in ourselves as interpreters and I think a lot of that can be where when we're coming against things that are traumatic because they go against our value system well a lot of our ethical decision making is value-based yes we have codes but especially in the sign language interpreting community ours is a very that thou must thou shalt oh, finger on high <laughs> not, gonna, not, not gonna go into all of that but yeah. it, that very rigid way of trying yeah. to decide things so actually you don't that you know the common answer is it depends well what does it depend on yes you've got a whole load of factors but actually your decision is coming from your underneath the iceberg as i call it your unseen history, your unseen structures, that's where you're going to get your clash of the, well, I might find this more traumatic than you do because of what's under there. Yeah, I had the, the, the last the last time I experienced vicarious trauma, what really surprised me is so I was doing French to English and there was a guy doing really from English into Spanish. And I don't know whether it was because I was doing really or whatever, but um, I was chatting to the guy who was on duty doing the Spanish and he didn't find it traumatic at all. He's like, yeah, I just got on and, and did it. And for him, there was no effect. And I thought, this is really interesting. You have two interpreters interpreting the same stuff. One has to stop after 10 minutes and hand over and take like the entire next shift of his broodmate just to get ready to interpret again. And the other one just shrugged it off and just got on with life. Mm. And I think that's really fascinating because it shows that the humanity of the interpreter is so, so important. And that's where as well, when we come back to sort of thinking about buckets, I, I, I stole that as a thing for, um, from more sort of, it's a psychosis model of why some people can cope with more or less than other people can. Some people have bigger buckets than other people and your, bu- your bucket gets subdivided as well. So, you know, it might be that in general you can cope with more, but there's this one little button that if anyone presses it, that's it, you're gone. Yeah, and in those situations, it's the, okay, my bucket is usually this big, but you give me that topic and everything from underneath my iceberg has already filled me up to 99.9%. <laughs> so you give me the little splash of the actual content and boom. Yeah, and plus, I mean, in communication, even just uh, normal, average, non-traumatic communication, we always filter what's being said through our own experiences, like Hannah already said, so it hits you in different ways. Mm. And like I, for example, I'm a super emotional person. (laughs) I'm very emotional. I cry at baby commercials, you know, that kind of type of stuff. (laughs) um, And even in interpreter practice, I remember we were interpreting the speech from... um, 
Emma Watson uh, at the UN. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I had to stop in and everyone was turned around and looked at me because I, I wasn't crying, but I was having these moments of like, Okay, <laughs> holding my breath and like swallowing really noisily because I was getting very emotional because for me this uh, I feel it feels like a very personal topic, and so this wasn't traumatic, but it was already uh, having an impact. So I think you know this this shows how yeah it affects people differently. Like maybe if a guy had done it, he was like yeah this is cool or whatever, but you know uh, it doesn't bother me so much. Because for me, it's like, this is an important topic and it makes me very emotional. Um, but I think something else to point out or that I would like to point out is also that this affects like the interpreting industry also on different levels. So on the one end, you have the impact on the interpreters directly, yeah, which is, of course, I mean, purely from the humanity of it, the most Im important, the most severe that we need to look at. But also, if you want to take it further with um, people who hire interpreters, it's not like they should shrug it off. Again, first of all, they should be, you know, good people about it. But also, if that's not enough of an argument, it does affect uh, like interpreter fill rates as well. And, you know, it's like because, for example, our survey showed as well that like every third interpreter who experienced vicarious trauma, at least in, in our survey, had to either like take a prolonged leave of absence. I was going to get to that. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, or mm. stopped taking certain uh, assignments, mm. um, or some also even left the profession because they couldn't deal with it anymore. Yeah, imagine that. Wow. So I feel like, you know, sometimes I think, okay, I'm, I feel like I'm coming in from two angles. I'm, uh, you know, I've come from the academic side, I'm an interpreter myself, and now I'm the interpreting researcher for NIMSI Insights. And of course, we largely also look at the business impact. Um, but yeah, I feel like this is really a topic that maybe from the outside looks like it's just affecting interpreters on the personal level, but it does also have an impact on the business, which um, in a way almost like if we can highlight that more, gives me a bit more hope that we can help that change with it. When people also realize from that side of, of it that it is in, a topic to deal with that goes beyond people just, you know, again, the humanity would be on the forefront for me. But if people don't want to see that, there is another side to it that might help drive the change, at least. I mean, I, I've talked to a, a counsellor who occasionally works with interpreters, and his sudden realisation was, well, if the interpreters don't have a coping mechanism, they can't deliver the interpreting that I need them to deliver. Yeah, good point. And that's a very basic thing of if they're not coping in the situation and they're not trained to cope in the situation, they can't do the job. Mm. And that's, um, I mean, I need to be careful because we finished the project in February with the, the NHS and police and people. And th this idea that when you get an appreciation all round of what it is interpreters are doing, and this we know from other research as well, when the people working with interpreters understand what it is the interpreters are doing and what they need to do well, everyone benefits. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that I don't need to cite any particular study because there are so many studies there. And it, it's making the case for, you know, we're not asking you to make allowance for people who are inherently weak or bad at their job. We're asking you to take people who are already fantastic and allow them to get access to the tools that will allow them to go on being fantastic tomorrow. 
And if we can phrase it like that, it's much easier for clients to go, that's why I should invest in this, because it is going to mean a financial and time investment. There's no doubt about that. But if we can help, you know, interpreting buyers see, if you want your interpreting to be cost effective in six months time, put in the hard work now so that interpreters have the support they need all, all along the, the way. Um, and that then, it makes more sense to people that way. Yeah, totally. But when they're seen as freelance or essentially contractors, even though there are some places that I work at quite regularly and have a sign language interpreting team in there that is fairly consistent and consists of regulars, we're not employed in that situation. Yes, we were on the ground. We work very closely with the professionals that are there and are considered an extension of the team. But in practice, further up the chain, we're not. We're independent contractors. So what responsibility do we have? Hmm. I mean, that, that I, I hate to say it, but that the discussions over the gig economy are actually going to start opening that up. Um, I mean, th there's also an argument, and I don't want to go too far down here, but one of the ways of helping interpreters with a vicarious trauma is possibly to campaign that in some circumstances, there's an interpreter within the organization somewhere on staff whose job it is to manage the interpreting as someone who knows what they're doing and who knows the support that's needed. And that I think there's been several people suggesting that. I know there's been a project in Australia where they brought all of the interpreters in the hospital for all of their most common languages onto staff and immediately saw a cost saving. And I thought, that's interesting that they bring everyone on staff, they give them all the support that staff get, and suddenly it becomes cheaper and they get better interpreting for less money. Works when you've got a few thousand of the yeah. language interpreters, when you've got but 1,200 yeah. spread out across the country. It becomes more difficult, yes. And and that's almost where you kind of then, is it a different top-down approach that's needed to say, actually, maybe it's coming from the regulatory body that says, okay, we're man making professional supervision mandatory, for example, and coming in at it from a different angle. Because sometimes you talk talking to more experienced interpreters has been the, well, why do I need to go and talk to someone about my work? You know, I've been fine for 20 years. Well, well have you really? Do you, do you really know what's going on with you yeah. and how you're operating in your work and what you've been experiencing? I guess that's that's the thing. And, and I think we're sort of passing that by a little bit earlier i think it's sort of about the prevention or what, what we can do to sort of be i mean we said yeah awareness is important people need to know about this but uh, but how can i be sort of mindful of what's going on or is there any anything i can do to sort of lessen the impact or you know maybe get more resilience that kind of thing resilience oh so uh, there's a literal sign that is grow <laughs> thick skin <laughs> <laughs> that's told repeatedly to sign language interpreters when we were well, at the point I did my training that hopefully has changed a little bit but it's just see grow a thick skin you'll be fine no just just no and also going back to what I was saying about different people experiencing it in different ways sometimes you can't always spot it within yourself yeah exactly yeah, it can be difficult and so that's where I would say for, for me working with a professional supervisor because you would have monthly meetings because you're seeing the same person because it's a boundaried relationship confidential trusting as the supervisor you get to know your supervisees you, you spot when they aren't quite their usual selves and it's the so, so what's going on for you at the moment and and then you get what's happening for them and you can start to unpick it it's also using that as a way so for instance I'm someone who having experienced depression and anxiety in my own life have gone through an awful lot of therapy, which was indirectly why I ended up training as a supervisor because for me, self-awareness has been absolutely key. 
but I absolutely still have my own blind spots. I don't always spot everything going on for me or hot spots where I just can't get that close on my own because it's just too hot the topic for me to deal with on my own. So having somebody else who has that distance but in a professional boundary way with the tools and the skill set to be able to go, I notice you keep getting this close to it and then you're buggering off. Mm. And and so those are the topics that, especially if you're interpreting in that sort of environment regularly, or it might be, especially with community interpreting, but it may, may be with conference. If there's a regular speaker who the minute they stand up, you're like, oh, and you roll your eyes and you're like, oh, it's oh, them yeah. again. Them again, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that reaction, <laughs> it might, it, yes, it could be. A, the, I may have had that today. Yeah, I might have had that today too. <laughs> so, so it could be, yes, they always speak in a monotone. Yes, they, you know, they speak for five minutes before you've actually got any content to interpret. It could be some of the technical stuff. It could also be your internal reaction to them. And subconsciously, they remind you of your primary school teacher that you hated. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting angle. Or vice versa. It could be someone you really, really liked. And because that's an unconscious reaction, that can bias your interpretation. And they might come across sounding nicer than they actually are, or more of a mm, than they actually yeah. are. And, and so some of that going on underneath, picking out where he's saying, you know, actually, it's more about people skills. Actually, we're taking, you know, the best of times, me trying to have a conversation with my partner about something and both of us are, but I thought you said that. No, I thought you said that. And that's two of us direct. And we're channeling that through us and all of that stuff underneath the surface and those interpersonal reactions that are going through our intra, what's going on inside us, mm-hmm. intra-personal reaction that's where a lot of all of this stuff comes up of the oh i roll it's them again i'm just yeah i'm just wondering because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking sort of the stereotypical freelance conference interpreter who's you know who's always busy always going to assignments and who say yeah you know it sounds sounds great but i just don't have the time how how do i do this and are you talking the, about me no. <laughs> and then, yes, so, yes, yes, we are. <laughs> I feel like you're talking about me. <laughs> no, I'm actually not. Um, and, and we say, okay, this sounds good, but uh, I, I don't see how this would fit with my lifestyle, with the way I approach my work, that there's no person I know that could be the supervisor. Or, I don't know. Um, so my response would be that quite a few of us professional supervisors would offer appointments via Zoom. So, you know... Friday night, well, okay, maybe not a Friday night, <laughs> but, you know, international, internet, available. There are quite a few of us that work in that way. So the time, an hour a month out of your life to keep your career for the rest of your life. Mm. Sure, yeah. That's a good sales pitch. Mm. Yeah. That is a quotable quote if ever I heard one. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think this is the thing, is that this awareness-raising thing um, there, there's a couple of levels and I wonder if you could kind of speak to a couple of levels. The first is awareness raising that it's okay to not be okay mm-hmm. and how do we do that? And mm-hmm. then awareness raising as to how to know when you need help and how to find it. Could you kind of give us a sense of what would you say to the people who are struggling? I certainly know when I started interpreting the idea that it was okay to not be okay was new and difficult. Mm-hmm. And also the idea that there might be more than one strategy, and I, you know, I'm, 
probably didn't even know one when I was there. Mm. Um, what can we, how can we raise people's awareness about that? So in some ways it's going back into when interpreters are training and going, look, professional supervision, yes, counsellors who are trained supervisors. And as a note, if you did look outside the interpreting profession for a supervisor, not all counsellors are trained supervisors. Sometimes they will say they're a supervisor by dint of their experience. But they've not had the additional training. It is different from a counselling role. Um, but those of us that are interpreters that are trained as supervisors is relatively new. So it's not very well known that there are interpreters who can supervise you in this way. And that as a monthly ongoing, could be slightly more or less depending on how much interpreting you're doing, but as a regular relationship that you're touching base with, that is a preventative thing. And I, I work with some interpreters who most of the time it's the, I don't really feel like I've brought anything this time. I'm seeing you, Hannah. Oh, has an hour gone already? Oh, okay. <laughs> like a podcast. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so from that perspective, yeah. it, it can, that is a thing. It's also, I think some of it is that the general climate we're in of it being more okay to own your feelings and, and that being a general awareness thing. But I think bringing that emotional human side into interpret training, even if it is just a bit of a brief, okay, we've got all of this going on and the interpreting models need to be more than just the language input output or particularly bit in the middle. I'm wondering if that was if that sort of showed up in your research as well, um, Sarah. Do you think this this would have been more difficult, like five or ten years ago, to get replies from people, people opening up, sharing this kind of thing? Um, I would assume so, but I can't really say because, to be honest, I found like the research in this particular field, like in combination with, uh, like in uh, especially in combination with interpreters. Uh, it was more or less non-existent. There was one oh. other company uh, that I could find that was doing something about it and uh, that are offering training as well uh, for interpreters to deal with it, uh, a company called Masterword in the U.S. Um, but yeah, this was part of the reason why we decided to do research on it as well, because there was a definite lack of it in this area. But I, I feel like it would make sense to me because um, we are, well, and that, that is a fantastic thing that we're overall as a society heading more into that direction of, you know, uh, owning, like being aware of your feelings and not being ashamed of them and allowing yourself to like deal with them and communicate them. But at the same time, we have so much more work to do in the society in general. And then to even bring this in for interpreting as well. I mean, bring this mm -hmm. in in terms of awareness it's like a lot of people that, um, so we looked into lots of aspects of this. And when we asked people, like, were you aware what was happening to you when it happened, when you experienced vicarious trauma? And like some, there were a good few, like I can't have, the, I don't have the exact number in my head now, but uh, who said that they did not realize what was happening to them until way later mm -hmm. when it had gotten much, much worse. So I feel like even if you may not be able to fully prevent it, it could already be a step forward uh, for people to be aware that this is a thing that could happen to them so that they can intervene earlier. Yeah. And I think as well, when I remember a lot of uh, the examples that from very early sign language interpreters who are now teaching, who are there at the forefront of it becoming a professionalization, they didn't have the tools themselves or the knowledge or the understanding to how to deal with things. So it was, oh, you just grow a thick skin and that's how you deal with it. They, they, they were passing on the only attempts and coping strategies and mechanisms they had and they knew. 
So whereas actually now if it's role modelled and the experiences and the examples that are given and are put out there are of the, okay, you have these sorts of experiences and this is how it can affect you. And actually at the end of the day, yes, you are there to do an interpreting job, but you are, I am there as Hannah. Hmm. And, and that needs to be more of the angle of consideration where a lot of this comes from of the, if this is the career you want to be doing for the rest of your life or the rest of the rest of your working life. Yeah, ideally. What that interaction looks like and how I look after myself and how I resource myself and what skills and strategies I use to be able to go, okay, I'm starting to get close to this level or I know this type of booking is more likely to affect me, whereas John might be able to go in and do it and that's no problem for him. So it's building that within yourself and getting to know that for yourself as you go through that journey. But some of that would start from earlier seed dropping around the, you are there, you are going to be impacted, know it, acknowledge it, know that that's okay to be impacted, but let's start talking about what we can do to help that. The, the jobs that I've actually felt the most professional satisfaction from and the most personal satisfaction from have been precisely jobs like those two where there has been an element of, um, defi- you know, an element of you're making a difference, but because you're making a difference, you carry some of the, the difficulties along with it. It's been more aligned with your values. Yeah. Yeah. It, because it's aligned with your values, suddenly, you know, I, I don't, ever remember walking away from an AGM going, you know, yoo-hoo, that's, that's massively life-changing. Usually you walk, walk away from an AGM going, I'm glad I'm getting paid. You really don't like um, AGMs, do you? <laughs> I really... Oh, so I, I love jobs where I can make a difference, and the difference you make at AGMs is... I'm not sure. But, um, well, but and that, that's the shadow side of us for all that interpreting is not seen as a helping profession. Actually, we are there because we want to make a difference. Make a difference. Yes. We, we give a voice to people who might not have their full voice in that situation. Yep. And so the shadow side of that is that's coming from a desire and a need to help. And so where you feel you are helping in some way, whether it's to help someone get, you know, negotiate a business deal or whatever, Mm. there is going to be something that from you that links into that. And it could be that you walk away so jubilant, it's amazing. But even that needs to be watched because you can get, I I do remember having one assignment where I was over the moon because it had done so well and I had helped people get get a multi-million pound deal. And then I was like, well, what now? And as soon as you come back down the mountain, you kind of have this crash and you go, oh, um, yeah. And it, it's managing this. I don't, I don't know about you, Alex Gansmar, but I mean, the, this inevitable kind of wave that, I, that you sometimes can surf as an interpreter from, great job. Oh, no, it's finance next. You know, and, and just <laughs> do it, how, riding that can be quite difficult sometimes. Yeah, I'm trying to think. <laughs> um like if you go from an amazing job to one that bores your trousers off. <laughs> he doesn't have those. <laughs> no, I definitely do have those. Trust me, I definitely yeah, have we all do. those super boring jobs. But then it's just kind of like it doesn't affect me personally. It's just like oh, interesting. bored out of my mind. Mm. But then I'm thinking, okay, well, this is the job for the day. And then tomorrow it's going to be something different. Plus one. Yeah. So I just yeah. kind of roll with the punches on that. Mm. Some of that may be how much you 
invest of yourself personally as mm. you know it's the it, the typical thing in our culture is the oh this is so and so and they are an interpreter <laughs> right and you get defined by your job yeah. so your sense of self-worth can get really tied up with how well that job's gone or not or how much you're personally invested in that job or not and so some of that being able to disentangle that and look at that and have the moment of the now hang on i've done two separate appointments that on the face of it are so completely similar and why am I walking away from the second one, feeling like I want to strangle the bloody client? Uh, and, and, uh, and, and there'll be things about how they are as a person or the different perspective they have on the topic mm. that's triggering something in you that's then that difference between the, well, that one was okay, and that one I wanted to strangle them. Yeah, completely. Alex, do you ever get that with your staff work that you'll go from, you know, great to oh no, great to oh no, or does it just, is everything so flat because you're so familiar with what you're doing? <laughs> no, no, there's definitely sort of things that I like doing more than others and you get the boring days and the really exciting days. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was thinking about how that how that changes the equation between staff interpreters and freelance interpreters, but probably probably not that, not that much. I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't. Um so one more thing I wanted to point out before I might have to sign off, <laughs> um, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so something else that I found really interesting in the report that we did um, was just basically the long-term effects for people. So because I think this is important to point out too, you know, there's always cynics out there who go like, well, you know, deal with it. So what, you were a little bit, you know, depressed for a day or two? It's like, first of all, we all know that that is not the case, but... You know what I mean? I found it really interesting that um, we actually found that so many people have long-term effects from this as well. And the one that stood out the most was um, people's outlook on life mm. uh, that oh, was no. severely affected by this. For example, I guess one example was this um, um, woman I interviewed as well with the sick children, how she sees all these kids now as well. They're just going to die anyway. And should I have children now or, you know, something like that? or the guy in uh, Colombia who uh, had to like, interpret for the police who was investigating a child pornography ring and he was starting to, he said, question everything. Uh, faith, humanity, his own uh, like role as a man in society, things like that. Mm. Um, but also people have said that it has deeply, for some it has impacted their relationships, their personality and their behavior as well. So I feel like it shows that it really does cut very deep and that it's not just the, you know, oh yeah, you can brush this off and you'll be fine again later. I mean, for some case, for some that might be the case or they might just keep it as a bad memory. But um, I, I found it really interesting to see how it can really profoundly impact people in the long term as well. But I think that's in general a really good summary of the whole topic anyways, because I feel like it's deeply personal and it won't affect anyone the same way, but everybody should be aware that it potentially can affect you in a plethora of different ways. Yeah. It's so everybody should be aware. All the more reason to sort of take it seriously and, yeah, exactly, and work through yeah. it. Hmm. And not just so grow up thick skin. <laughs> Exactly. exactly. If you're listening, don't just grow the thick skin. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and even if you're having the moments of the, oh, I'm still feeling a bit there, but you know, oh, it'll go away. N no, your brain Not doesn't deal with it like yeah. that. If if yeah. you don't deal with it, if you don't get it out in a healthy way, if you don't then be able to develop strategies of okay, the next time that that particular get speaker gets up on stage, I want to roll my eyes at them again or strangle them. Actually. <laughs> No, this time I, I know it's my reaction to yeah. I've got a different way I can think about this. I've got a different way I can approach it. I've got some 
personalized strategies up my sleeve, not just the generic, yes, look after yourself physically, get regular massages, eat healthily, get your eight hours sleep, generic self-care stuff. Now this is this is self this is professional self-care. Yeah. This is what works for you. That means the next time you're in those sorts of situations, you can deal with them differently and ultimately keep your career healthy. Now that's a wrap up if I ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> that was very professional. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad you could, you could stick around, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, thank my husband who was running late. I can hear him in the background. Thanks, Mike. Awesome. <laughs> well, Alex was already a fan to begin with, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. But yeah, I really do think that was a, that was a brilliant wrap up, Hannah. Thank you. I guess the only thing is, is that do we value ourselves enough as people to be able to go, I need to invest that little bit of time in the month to be able to look after myself professionally? Do, do Because we are our business. And if we're not healthy on all fronts, we're not going to be sustainable. 